0: Let's turn to the scripture, uh, which is coming from John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated, the Christ and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of God. Amen.
1: Uh, So my name is Jordan, and I probably should have said that before we did the child dedication, uh, and I'm Always honored to be a part of uh, the celebrations in life, that these milestones, like child dedication, uh, to the families uh, that were presenting your children today. It is a great honor for me to be a part of of this. I just wanted to say thank you for uh, letting Renaissance be a part of that, and thank you for letting me be a part of it. Um, It's something that I don't take for granted. Uh, So last weekend, I wasn't here. Uh, My family and I went to homecoming at, at Morgan State University. And uh, as soon as I pulled up to campus, if if I'm being completely honest, man, I got like a little emotional as soon as we got to campus. Uh, For one, I was going to bring my my sons to such a place that was one of the most meaningful places for me. So much of my life changed at Morgan State University. Uh, When I arrived there 20 years ago as a freshman, uh, I had no idea what life would look like and how it would shape me in the ways that it did. To be perfectly honest, the reason that we are all sitting here today is because of what God did to me on Morgan State's campus. Uh, when I walk that yard, to me, it's, it's holy ground. I walked past the library that 20 years ago, or 19 years ago, I somehow found myself at a Bible study. I had been you know, living life and having a, a grand old time on campus, and then somehow, through a series of invitations, I found myself in a Bible study, and I don't even remember all the things that were said and done. The next thing I know is I was ugly, shoulder-bop crying at the end of the Bible study. And true story, uh, I, I waited around in the library after because my eyes were swollen from crying, and I didn't want my boys to think I was a punk or something like that, so I waited and cried some more in the library. Now, my life changed. I didn't really know too much about theology. The only thing I did know was that God met people exactly where they were, and God met me. That day, my life would change quite literally forever. Now, a lot of people have a very different coming to faith story than than mine was, so mine was not normative for how things should always be. Uh, But God did so much to me on that campus that it wasn't just that I found him on that campus, I also found my calling in in life to pastor. (laughs) I think that the way that most people understand calling is something that's like really mystical and deep for no reason. But the way that I uh, became called to be a pastor, to be in ministry, to do any of these things that we're doing, wasn't because, you know, like one day someone, you know, gave me this deep prophetic word that this was was what I was going to do. It was just stuff that really bothered me. I think that if you want to determine what God might be calling you to do, I want you to look for two things. One. It's burden. What bothers you? What makes you upset? What just won't settle in your life and in your heart? The other thing is open doors. If you have a burden and there are open doors, maybe God is calling you to walk through those doors. Maybe you shouldn't be complaining about stuff. Maybe God is using this as an invitation to call you. 20 years ago on that campus, God allowed me to be so bothered by something that it would change my life forever. Forever and it's the reason that we're all here today. I think that if you even look through the biblical record of of, of scripture, the way that God calls people is through bothering them first. In Exodus 2 uh, and 2 and 11, it talks about the life of a guy named Moses, one of the most prominent leaders in the Old Testament. And Moses was a Hebrew child, an Israelite child, that grew up in Pharaoh's house as an Egyptian. Even though Moses was growing up, he knew all along, that he himself was not uh, an Egyptian, but he was an Israelite. And God allowed Moses to see some things. God allowed Moses to be bothered by some things before he called him from a burning bush. Exodus 2.11 says that years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The point of that scripture is not to let you go out and kill somebody, but before God called Moses from a burning bush, God first lit Moses on fire. God let him witness some things that would bother him so much that he would move in the direction that God was calling him to do. The same thing is true with us, that in order for God to call us uh, first, God lets us see some things, be bothered by some things, to shake us up like a can of spray paint to be ready to do his work. Uh, that happened to me when I was on campus. Um, so all I knew on, on campus was that God met people exactly where they were. That's all I knew. I didn't, I didn't have any Bible degrees or anything. And I would spend a lot of time praying for my friends that they would one day come to meet this Jesus who had changed my life. And I was praying for one of my friends, and I would invite them to church. And one day, me and one of my friends had a, a great conversation And he decided that, yes, he would come to church with me. That next morning, I got up and I prayed, and I said, God, please let something that is said reach him. Uh, We got to church, and uh, three hours later, after the missionary Sunday presentation and the usher board, uh, all this other stuff happening, we got out of church, and he said some words that burned into my soul and have shaped everything I've done for the last 20 years, He looked at me and he was apologizing. He said, yo, Jordan, yo, my bad, bro, but I didn't understand anything they were talking about. Now here was this lost son that was coming now open to hearing about Jesus and they spent three hours talking about everything else under the sun, talking about all this deep stuff that nobody understands and nobody cares about that has no application to anyone's life. And here he is brought there, ready to, uh, hoping to meet Jesus. And they just start talking about stuff way over his head. And the one that we're supposed to be going after, the one that Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost, left having no idea what we were talking about. I knew that day what I was going to do about it. I was so bothered that I hit up one of my friends and said, "Yo, bro, we got to teach a Bible study. Because I was tired of taking my friends to churches where they would walk away not understanding what was going on. And they had no understanding of what it meant to place their faith in Jesus. They had no idea what Jesus had done for them. They had no understanding of what the gospel was truly all about. So me and my boy, we sat around planning for a Bible study. And again, I had no um, training or anything. The only thing I had was my aunt found out that I was a Christian. And she sent me uh, these T.D. Jakes cassette tapes. Uh, like these, the, the, this is old school, like the, the hard plastic shell cassette tapes, and I listened to six hours of T.D. Jakes to preach a 30-minute Bible study, and the, the Bible study went as well as you think it went. Uh, I taught the worst lesson that has ever been taught, known to man. In every way, it made no sense. It, you know, it had like 17 points, and I was like, "Well, point 16 is." And it was, a, it was pretty terrible, but the strangest thing happened. It was a peculiar moment. It was a moment of clarity for me. I was almost having like an outer body of experience that while I was teaching and bombing it and knowing I was thinking it up, I was thinking to myself, yo, I actually think this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. These 20 dudes that I used to party with won't go to church, but they'll listen to me talk about Jesus. What if God is using this to... Uh, show me something about what he wants me to do with my life. That day I discovered my why. Why I do what I do vocationally as a minister. That why, understanding that, has led me for the last 20 years to make a series of of decisions, even really difficult decisions, all in pursuit of, uh, of never hearing that story again that my friend told me that he would leave a church and not understand what they were talking about. I determined that It might not be good, but at least you're going to understand it. You might not agree with it, but at least you're going to understand it. That has been my why. And here's the thing about our life and not understanding why we're doing the things that we're doing. What you do is important, for sure. Why you're doing it is way more important. Now, why you do the things um, that you do will keep you going when you encounter obstacles and difficulties. Lord knows this generation is... uh, is in serious need of endurance, the ability to uh, endure through uh, obstacles and difficulties. That's a new word in the SATs, obstacles. <laughs> it will give you direction when you feel like you don't know which way is up, and it will keep you from becoming distracted. Now, the problem that many of us have in our life and in our walk with Jesus is that I don't even know that we would be able to identify or to say why it is we follow Jesus. Now, we've been in the book of John, and we're going to take our time going through the book of John. And Jesus asks a question in this first chapter that is profound. If you allow it to soak over you, man, it's life-changing. It comes to us in the book of John, verses 35 through 37. Um, And Jesus is getting at what we're talking about today. What you do matters, but why you're doing it matters way more. Here's how it picks up. It says, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Uh, The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? Up to this point in the gospel of John in chapter 1, we've gotten a huge introduction to the person of Jesus. Uh, John mirrors so much of John 1 with the book of Genesis that the way Genesis starts is also the same way that John starts in the beginning. John introduces us to this person of Jesus. Jesus, John says, is not just like God's prophet. He's not God's soldier that he sends to do his work. Jesus is God in the flesh that has now come and appeared to us. Jesus is eternal. That in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And this word now has appeared and dwelt and made his living among us. Now God is accessible to us. So John goes through all of this language describing who Jesus is, and now we finally get to hear from this divine being of Jesus. What's the first thing he says? It's a question. He turned to his disciples, and he asked them this question. What are you seeking? Jesus is asking us the same question. What are you seeking? What are you hoping for? He's still asking, and he still wants to know. Now, it's really interesting to note that Jesus is not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. In Genesis 3, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, the first interaction between God and and man after God uh, creates man and gives him orders, uh, we see that Adam and Eve have sinned, they've eaten the forbidden fruit, and now they're on the run eating. And um, the people who got that, that was a good joke for the people who got that. (laughs) It was top 5%, but nobody else got it. Uh, So now they're on the run, and um, God comes to them, and he asks them a question. Where are you? Theologians describe these as mirror questions. Now, this is the same God who has just spoken things into existence. Mountains and Labrador retrievers can appear just because he says the word. This God is not struggling to know where they're hiding. He's not asking for him. He's asking for them. When you see questions in scripture, like, where are you? It's a loving and gracious interrogation to hold up a mirror in front of our face to make us look at some stuff that we'd rather hide from. Jesus is doing the same thing here in John 1. When he comes to his disciples and turns to them, he says, what are you seeking? It's not because he doesn't know. It's because they didn't know. And oftentimes we don't know. There is so many different things that we can fill that in with, um, so many different ways that we can fill in that blank if we're being perfectly honest, and there's certainly a lot of ways that we can all miss the mark. Uh, We can miss the mark of what Jesus intends for us to have. Now, theologians will talk about this scripture about all of the things that uh, how people would answer this question, what are you seeking? Uh, But one of the great tragedies of the Christian life is oftentimes people come to Jesus for stuff that he's not offering, years ago when Renaissance first got our, our, our cell phone, I don't know what happened with our phone number, but for whatever reason, we were getting like 10 calls a day from a car service. Now, if you've been around New York for a minute, you know that before Uber and Lyft, there were car services. And our older saints, our older people, I ain't call nobody old, uh, they're not using nobody's Uber or Lyft. Grandma not using Uber or Lyft, she's going to call the same car service she's been using for the last 39 years to get her to where she wants to go to, and that's just going to be what it is. And maybe five times a day, we would get a call for a car service. And most of the time, as soon as someone would call, I'd pick up the phone, and I would just hang up on them, which is good, because now they associate churches with being hung up on. <laughs> and uh, But every now and then, I would get kind of stuck on the phone, and there's one um, woman called And before I can say, ma'am, you know, we're not a car service and end the call, uh, she just like launched into all of these reasons why she needed a car right now. Five minutes into the call, I finally was able to say, ma'am, this is a church. You're in Jamaica, Queens. There's nothing that I can do for you. What she was seeking, I wasn't able to give her. Better stated, what she was seeking, I wasn't offering she wasted five minutes of her life and uh, she did have a pressing need to get somewhere. I ended up Googling something for her and getting her the right information. <laughs> I can't leave grandma hanging. I ain't hang up on grandma. <laughs> Jesus asks these disciples this question up front. And it's a question we would do well to answer at every stage of our life with Jesus to make sure that we are going after Jesus for something that he is in fact offering. A lot of times... I'll speak to people, and um, there's a lot of different things that they want from Jesus, and a lot of times, it's not what what he's offering. What are you seeking? Now, theologians will talk about this concept of extrinsic motivations and intrinsic motivations. Extrinsic motivations are behavior that is driven by external rewards, such as money, fame, grades, and praise. This type of motivation arises from outside the individual, as opposed to intrinsic motivation, which originates inside the individual. So many people come to church to get stuff, to get things. And if we're not careful, we'll think that that's Jesus. There's a huge difference between waiting on God and waiting on what you want from God. Now, let me hop off my high horse for a hot second and just say there's so many extrinsic motivations that I struggle with. Probably the biggest one is success uh, I have a legit fear of, of failing, which leads to overwork and it leads to a lot of different things because I don't want, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail at anything that I put my, my hands to. And uh, I was talking to one of my mentors and uh, he looked at me and says, Jordan, you know what the best thing will be for you? Some failure. That might be the only place you can actually meet Jesus. He's asked me a question and I was like, I'm not meeting with you no more, bro. because you, I'm going to find a new mentor and tell me something different. When he told me that, I had to think about it. Like, is Jesus enough? If I just had him, would that be sufficient? If the answer is no, then what's my view of Jesus? Jesus asked us this question, what are you seeking to root out and to dig up? What are our motivations in coming to him? What are you hoping to get out of this? Now, let me first say, uh, be really clear. This is not meant to dissuade you or to tell you to stop praying for God to do stuff in your life. God invites us to pray for things in in, in our lives. But if we're not careful, the things will replace the relationship. And the things will turn into demands. And those demands will be the criteria by which we decide whether or not we'll follow Jesus. There's something that we've talked about a couple of months ago called circumstantial faith. Uh, Circumstantial faith is a faith that is constructed for God to do certain things. And if God doesn't meet these criteria, you out. I've talked to enough people as a pastor to know um, about circumstantial faith. And what people think is faith in Jesus is actually faith in what they want Jesus to do for them. Uh, probably the best way to talk about circumstantial faith is through people who have walked away from the faith. A lot of times people believe that if I do A, B, and C, then God is obligated to do D, E, and F. Or that God will never do X, Y, and Z if I do 1, 2, and 3. And then God doesn't behave the way that they want Him to behave, and they leave. And oftentimes, these people say they walked away from Jesus, and all they really walked away from was their list of demands. God wasn't meeting their demands the way they wanted to, and they left. And I don't want that to be any of you. I want us to seriously wrestle with this question Jesus, what is it that I'm seeking? What is it that I am after in my life? What am I hoping to get? Why am I here? Now, if you'll follow, like, sociology and religion in America, you'll see something called the rise of the nuns. And when I say nuns, I'm not talking about, like, Whoopi Goldberg, Sister Act II nuns. I'm talking about the nuns as in N-O-N-E, nun, like no religious affiliation. And a lot of people have talked about the reason why so many people are leaving churches and, and different faiths. And the biggest reason that not enough people are talking about is that now it's no, more, it's no longer socially beneficial to belong to a church or a faith community. A hundred years ago, you couldn't even get a bank loan or a job unless you were a deacon in somebody's church. Now, there's no more societal benefits. What you've seen happen is an exodus from the church once the benefits ran out. Those people are not walking away from Jesus. They walked away from their extrinsic motivations of what they can get out of him. I don't want any of us having a shallow faith or a shallow approach to what Jesus is truly offering. And here's why I'm talking about all of this, and here's why uh, I'm I'm pushing back and and I'm putting this question in your lap uh, right now. Not because I don't want you to pursue stuff. It's not because Jesus wants to give you a lesser version. It's because he wants to give you way more. We have so many limitations on Jesus that we're coming to him, and I, I heard this quote about Uh, prosperity gospel. And prosperity gospel is this teaching. It's a very dangerous teaching that God wants you to have all this material blessing and success. And, you know, God just wants you to prosper and all these different things. And listen, I, I believe wholeheartedly that God wants good things for us. The danger of the prosperity gospel is not that it promises too much, it's that it promises too little. It gives us a version of faith that removes Christ from it. Now, the best way I, I know how to explain this is um, if we talk about uh, Jesus and how profound and vast he is. In the book of Colossians, it talks about that Jesus is before all things, and by him, all things hold together. So in Scripture, it's saying that the universe is held together by Jesus' hand, all of the universe. Now, if you were to, by distance, mark out the distance between the earth and the, and the sun, which is 93 million miles, if you were to put that in a piece of paper, um, if this represented from, you know, from the Earth to the sun, 93 million miles, from the sun to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. The Milky Way, which is a galaxy that we live in and is one of billions of galaxies and constellations or whatever it is. I, I found out of astrology. Uh, ast- astronomy, not astrology. <laughs> don't send me no emails about, you know, no, nah, don't send me none of that. The Milky Way, the distance between the earth and the the extent of the Milky Way would be a stack of papers 310 miles long. So this is from the earth to the sun to the end of the Milky Way is a stack of papers 310 miles long. And that's just one galaxy among billions of galaxies. And scripture tells us that Jesus holds all these things together by the palm of his hand. And we come to this Jesus with our list of things to do. Jesus, our assistant. Hey, bro, I need you to knock these things out. Um, Wednesday. Is Wednesday too late? Uh, I hope not because, all right, this is what I need. The only logical approach to Jesus when he asks us what is it that we seek after him is to take all the limitations off of him to say, you're enough. Let me tell you the most dangerous prayer you could pray. It's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, and this is what I want you to actually pray this week. It's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your will be done. That's a dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous prayer because there's so many fears attached to that of what God would actually do with our lives if we allowed him to have the reins in our life. Underneath that is a false belief that you know better, which is a lie from the pit of hell. The other lie underneath that is that God doesn't have good motivations for you. That God wants to just use you as a pinata uh, while he... Let's everybody else shine, that God doesn't want to do good things for you. Now, this is the God that we're told in scripture that has come into eternity to bring us back to himself. God has good motivations for us. It might not always feel good, but it is good. Now, intrinsic motivations, the motivations of coming to Jesus, not because of what everyone else is doing, uh, would lead us to a different place where we're saying, Jesus, as difficult as it is for me to say this, what am I seeking? I'm seeking you. And whatever it is that you have to give me, I'm seeking you and whatever it is that you have to give me from your fullness. Now, one of the, the blessings and the, the very practical things that will happen in your life, if you start to pray these prayers, Lord, your will be done in my life and you give yourself the benefit of time to wait and to trust that God is doing a good thing in your life is, man, the right motivations will keep you going when you encounter obstacles and difficulties. Uh, No generation in recent history has been as ill-equipped to handle challenges and obstacles as ours. So many people are telling everyone how to achieve their dreams, but no one is telling people how to live when their dreams are no longer attainable. One of my jobs and my burdens as a pastor is, listen, I love the highs. I love dancing at people's weddings. If you invite me to your wedding, I'm going to embarrass everybody. My wife, for sure, I'm going to embarrass her. I love dancing. I love child dedications. I love the high moments. And these are beautiful things that we should celebrate because they're good gifts from God that He wants to give us. But life is not lived up on a mountaintop. Sometimes God wants to meet you in the valley. And as Tim Keller says, um, he probably says it better than I could life only has meaning if we have a hope that suffering and disappointment cannot destroy. Your life will only have meaning if we have a hope that suffering and disappointment cannot destroy. So let me go back to that question, what are you seeking? Can suffering and disappointment destroy that answer? It can destroy your marriage, for sure. It can destroy your kids. It can destroy your job. It destroyed my hairline. (laughs) Life only has meaning if we have a hope that suffering and disappointment cannot destroy. And if you're coming to Jesus and you fill in that blank with anything other than him, you're going to miss out on what he wants to do in your life. Listen, as someone who has lived through a couple of things in life, let me tell you like this, straight up and down. There is so much that you cannot see right now. There is so much that you cannot even imagine of what God is doing right now in your life. Do not judge God's faithfulness and love and commitment to you based on this snapshot of life right now. And so these right motivations of coming to Jesus, uh, to him, uh, will keep us on track uh, through difficulty and obstacles in in life. Years ago, when I first got married, uh, I went to a church in Virginia. We go every year to my family reunion in the boondocks, and there was a couple there that had been married for 72 years at the time, 72 years. And I went up to them, I said, listen, and I had just gotten married. I said, listen, what do I need to do, bro? Just tell me something. He could have said anything. He could have been like, yo, no left socks. That's it. And I would have been like, all right. Never wearing a left sock ever again. The wealth of his information. They weren't just married for 72 years. They were married for 72 years with joy. And they were a beautiful picture of life and marriage. I knew that they knew better than I did. I think so many times we live with the suspicion that God doesn't know better than we do. And so we we limit what God could be doing in our life based on what's right now. And we don't take him out of the box. Jesus holds all things together. The only logical thing to do is let him out of our boxes. Jesus tells us uh, the second thing that uh, would happen if we truly uh, came to Jesus just for Jesus and said, I just, want, I just want you and what you have for me, is it would, it would keep us on course. Uh, it would keep us on course. And a lot of us struggle with direction for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons we struggle with direction is sometimes God just doesn't tell us what his will is in our life right? There's a lot of time that God just doesn't let us know. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because God values you being transformed more than you being informed. God values your transformation more than you having information, right? So sometimes God doesn't just tell you everything because he knows that needs to be patience and, and, and endurance built up in your heart. But there's other times when we're off course and we're not hearing direction from God because we're not going to do what he wants us to do anyway, Like, even if he were to tell us what to do, we're not listening. It's not that God lacks the ability to direct. It's that we lack the ability and the desire to hear from God what he wants us to do. I was talking to a brother uh, here one time, and he was talking about his marriage problems. And, you know, we started talking about his marriage and all the issues he was going through. And, you know, I let him vent for a little bit. And he said, hey, man, what should I do? And I said, yo, bro, you know, what what does it tell us in Scripture? What do husbands need to do? The Bible tells us. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Uh, How did Christ love the church? By sacrificing his life for her and giving himself over to her, free of charge, by laying down his life for her. So it's your job. Think of the most sacrificial thing you can do for your wife and do it. He looked at me and says, nah, I ain't doing that, bro. (laughs) What else you got? A lot of us live our life with Jesus like that. I'm not doing that. What else you got? And we struggle with direction in our life, but it's not because Jesus lacks the ability to direct. We lack the ability to to willfully follow. There's a scripture in Jeremiah 33 and 3 where where God promises us this beautiful thing. It says, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you a great and incomprehensible things that you do not know. Last thing of having the right motivation of answering that question, Jesus, I just want you, uh, it will keep us from distractions. Life with Jesus and having the right motivations of why we're coming will keep us from distractions. It will redirect us and, and reorient our lives when we're losing our way. Let me let you guys in on a dirty little secret. The number one struggle of everybody who works at a church, who works at a ministry, who's a super volunteer at any church, and I say this wanting you to pray for us and for people that you know, is at some point we kind of lose our, our, our way. The thing that motivated us to get into it in the first place ends up being replaced by all the stuff that we're now doing. So we turn from being human beings and having a passion to human doings and doing 900,000 things. And it's these words of Jesus that are meant to redirect us and reorient us and bring us back and say, what are you seeking? Are you seeking to just do all these different things? Or do you want me and do you want other people to know me? It's been those moments where I've been most reminded of why I got into this in the first place. And man, those are moments of clarity. I never want to give up. Now, one of the biggest challenges for us uh, is how do we like really trust that God has the best intentions for us? That if we really were to pray, Lord, your will be done. If we really were to pray that, then that good things would happen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a doctrine in the Bible in John 1 of forgiveness. And Jesus here, even in verse 35, is referred to as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin from the world. That as far as the east is from the west, everyone who places their faith in Christ, so far has he removed you from your sins. And that is a concept called forgiveness. Forgiveness means that God is no longer holding over your head the things that you have done. Past, present, and future, it has all been nailed to the cross. And forgiveness is a beautiful concept In so much as it has its limitations. Forgiveness just means you could go without being punished. The gospel says you can come. The answer that Jesus tells his disciples uh, after he says, What are you seeking? and they say, Where are you staying? Jesus' invitation to them is to come. What the gospel does in our life is not just that it forgives us, but it's also an invitation. It's to come. In the Bible, in the New Testament, it talks about this as adoption. That it's not just that God wants to forgive you, but that God also brings you into His own as His own child. And that God will not leave you as an orphan, as it says in John 14. And you don't have to live as if you're an orphan or you're on your own, but rather you can turn to God, our Heavenly Father, who has brought us back into His home. Uh, The problem that most of us encounter is that we we don't feel safe and we don't feel secure and we don't feel adopted. The Bible tells us in Romans to renew your mind because oftentimes, Our minds need to take us to where our emotions can follow. Uh, Adoption is a a beautiful concept in in Scripture, and it tells us that the goal of the gospel is that we are adopted. We are his own. One of the things that you'll notice, and I hope you notice this today, is the way that parents look at their kids on stage during child dedications. They look at them with so much joy, protection, love, love. Now, I was following my brother AC's uh, Twitter account. Most of the time we talk about basketball, and uh, he has some perfect theology he dropped one day, and yes, I'm reading your tweets. The tweets is watching. Um, and he said, sometimes he just looks at his son and he just says like, yo, y'all yeah, would die for this dude, bro. To be adopted by God, to be brought into his home means that God looks at us and says, yo, I would, I would die for you. And he did die for us by going to the cross in Jesus Christ. Years ago, one of my friends uh, adopted a boy from South Africa, and uh, she brought him back home, and as soon as she brought him home, she noticed one of the strangest phenomenon happening. She had all these toys and all these different things for him, and she just couldn't find his stuff. And she was looking around the room like, yo, I just brought like a whole thing of toys. Like, Where did all of these toys go? Later, she found out that he had been taking everything that she had given him and hiding them under his bed. He had been adopted, but he was still living like he was in the orphanage. In the orphanage, you had to hide your stuff because someone was stealing it. Now he's at home with someone who has loved him and adopted him, brought him across the entire ocean uh, to New York City, placed him in his own home, in his room, with his own stuff, and he was still living with the suspicion that he was living in an orphanage. Oftentimes, it takes our emotions and our heads a little time to catch up with our reality, And what the Bible tells us is our reality is that we are adopted and brought into a new home, a new family. So you don't have to hide your stuff. You don't have to hide the little crevices of your life that you don't want to turn over. You can live as an adopted child, knowing and trusting that God has good intentions for you. And when God, our Father, comes to you and says, what are you seeking? I hope our answer is you. Let me pray for us. God, our Father. There's so many things that distract me and take my attention away from you and what I should be going after. And I just pray for conviction and direction that you would lead me toward you uh, when my attention is so wanting to go in a million different directions. When I lose my way, God, would you remind me what truly matters? God, would you remind me of your faithfulness and your love for me? and Let that motivate me towards... A life of trust in you. Just let me pray. Amen.